This morning I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the New Testament Scripture to Ephesians chapter number one, as was just read a moment ago, Ephesians chapter number one. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, 21 are epistles. They are letters that are written by the apostles to the pastors and people of the churches in various cities like Rome and Corinth and Philippi and Colossae and Thessalonica and, and of course, Ephesus. So it got me to thinking, what if I were to write an epistle? What if I were to write a letter to the Fourth Baptist Church in the city of Plymouth? What if all of your pastors were to write letters to our church, what would we say? Our sermon series this summer is titled, Church Matters, a Modern Epistle to the Saints in Plymouth. But here's the thing, there is nothing that I can write or nothing that I can say beyond what has already been spoken by the Spirit of God and inscripturated in the Word of God. A modern epistle to the saints of God in the city of Plymouth wouldn't be something new or novel. Rather, it would be a restatement of the glorious truths and the great challenges that have already been given to us in the New Testament. So in conjunction with our Summer Home Bible Fellowship program this summer on Wednesday evenings, we begin a new topical series of studies on Sunday mornings titled Church Matters, a modern epistle, actually an ancient epistle to the saints in Plymouth. Let me pause for prayer and then we'll look at our scripture text this morning. God in heaven, we thank you so much for your church the people whom you purchased with your blood. I thank you, Lord, for the Fourth Baptist Church in the city of Plymouth, Minnesota. Lord, this fellowship of believers that's gathered here as sinners saved by grace, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to fully understand our position and better practice our position as saints in God in Christ as your church. I pray, God, that you would go before us now in this hour as well as for the the weeks to come this summer as we study these church matters, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The church in Ephesus was planted by the apostle Paul on his second missionary journey when he went into the synagogue in the city of Ephesus and there, according to Acts chapter 18, he reasoned with the Jews On his third missionary journey, Paul returned to the city of Ephesus and spent three years there persuading them concerning the things of the kingdom of God, Acts chapter 19, Acts 18 and Acts 19. Later then, from prison in the city of Rome, Paul penned this epistle or this letter writing back to the believers in the city of Ephesus. And the book of Ephesus is not a personal letter. It's it's not a letter like like. Timothy or Titus or Philemon, but rather it's a public letter addressed to a church at large. In fact, the book of, Ephesus, the book of Ephesians is an open letter, not just to the saints of God in the city of Ephesus, but also to the churches in the region, much like Paul's letter to the Colossians. And this morning I have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, for it begins in the very same way that I want to begin our summer series this summer, by identifying what makes a church a church. And by that, I I don't mean the physical organization of activity, but rather the spiritual organism of identity. Not the physical organization of activity, 
what we do as a church, but the spiritual organism of identity, who we are as a church. Specifically, the church is made up of those who are in Christ. And this morning, I want to highlight those two words, in Christ, as they are repeated over and over again in Ephesians chapter number one. I begin uh, with verse number one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And so I've titled our study this morning, The Church in Christ. And after the standard prologue of verses 1 and 2, Paul wrote verses 3 through 14 as a single sentence in the Greek language. It's not noted as such in your English Bibles, but in the Greek language, a single sentence, verses 3 through 14. Some scholars claim it's the most cumbersome sentence in the Greek language, but it's not the ramble of a run-on sentence. Rather, it's a very neatly ordered package of truth that tells us about our position in Christ. Now, it's impossible to fully detail and digest all that was read a moment ago, Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. It's impossible to fully expose or to exposit all 14 verses in a single sermon this morning. Seven years ago when I preached through the book of Ephesians, I committed four messages to this very same text. This morning, a single sentence in a single Message, But I want you not just to take notes by filling in the blanks in your outline, but I want you to record comments and questions in the white space there in your notes to aid in your discussion this Wednesday evening in your home Bible fellowship meetings if you are signed up and will be participating in those on, on Wednesday evening. Let's pick up in verse number three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul calls God the Father the blessed one who blesses us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What are those spiritual blessings? The spiritual blessings are listed here in in, in the text. And the first and second assignment that I would have for you this Wednesday evening as you gather in small groups in your HBF Holmes is I want you to read through Ephesians chapter one and find all of the occasions that you find the two words in Christ or in him or in the beloved in Christ. Then secondly, I want you to identify and to list all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, the benefits that we have in Christ. And if you do nothing else this Wednesday evening in your small groups, celebrate your blessings, these spiritual blessings in Christ. And so thinking about church matters this summer, it all begins here, who we are in Christ and what we have, spiritual blessings in Christ. Let me break it down for us. It begins, number one, the work of the Father in selecting the church. The work of the Father in selecting the church. I would point you again to verse number three. Four and five, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There's our two words again. Just as he chose us in him, in Christ, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved, in him, in Christ. 
Now, the word chose in verse number four, if you're looking at the scripture text there, it's the Greek word eklegomai, which is translated numerous times throughout the New Testament as elect. The work of the Father in selecting the church begins with letter A, election. Now, the idea of God the Father selecting us or electing us is for many not a point of praise, but a point of protest. However, we can't escape what the Bible text teaches us regarding this. When we speak of God's choosing us or selecting us or electing us, we can look back to other places in the scripture. For, for example, God's theocratic election of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter number seven. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all the peoples, but because the Lord loves you. For this reason, God chose Israel. How about God's vocational election of his his servants? God chose the tribe of Levi to be priests. God chose certain men to be kings and prophets. Jesus chose 12 men to be apostles. In fact, Jesus told those apostles, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. But it's not only the nation of Israel, not only the vocational election of his servants, God's special election of believers, 2 Thessalonians 2, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. And Now some will suggest that, that God chose us only after he saw who of us would first choose him. You see, God looked down the corridors of time and he saw human history play out and then he chose those who are going to choose him anyway. But I, I would contend that that argument is due to a misunderstanding of the idea of foreknowledge. The argument goes like this, because God knew beforehand what would take place, God then simply declared it to be because he knew beforehand what was going to happen anyway. But folks, foreknowledge is not simply knowing beforehand, it is determining beforehand. It was Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. He said that Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God and crucified. But we object, we object to this. We say, but what of man's role and responsibility in salvation? What of man's role and responsibility to accept the gospel message or to reject the gospel message? Doesn't man have a free will to either believe or to not believe in Jesus? And for centuries, theologians and churchmen have debated this tension. So we are not gonna solve it this morning. And we are not going to settle it on Wednesday evening either, all right? Do not blow up your home Bible fellowship by debating this issue, the sovereignty of God in choosing and the responsibility of man in believing. Whatever is happening here in God's election, Paul calls it a spiritual blessing, Whatever it is, he counts it as a spiritual blessing. 
the back of your notes, I've copied a brief paragraph from J.I. Packer that, that might be helpful to you to read later. We're not going to read it just now in this moment, but you can read that at a later point, perhaps this Wednesday evening. But perhaps you're not convinced. Okay, Paul continues the thought in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And this is letter B, adoption. The work of the Father in selecting the church by election, by choosing us, by adopting us, letter B. And I so admire those who have adopted children, some in our own church family. And I admire them not just because adoption is a social remedy to provide a home for children, but because adoption is a theological reflection of the gospel. It pictures what God the Father did for us in Christ in adopting us. You see, some might adopt a child to meet the needs of the child, but but really adoption is bigger than the needs of a child. One adopts a child according to the good pleasure of their own will. They want the joy of making that child their own and inviting that child into their home and giving that child their name. God chose us and he adopted us to be his sons and daughters according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, verses five and six. What a blessing. As we think about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, God chose us and he adopted us, but there's more. Look at verse number seven, in him, that is in Christ. These are our two words. This is our position. And this is now, number two, the work of the Son in saving the church. The work of the Father in selecting the church. The work of the Son in saving the church. Verse number seven, in him, in Christ, we have redemption. That's letter A, redemption through his blood. Now, redemption means to purchase or to ransom, and historically it referred to the purchase of a slave from bondage or the ransom of a prisoner of war from captivity. And in both cases, the slave and the POW were redeemed when the price was paid for their freedom. It's in the Old Testament that God spoke of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt in this way in Exodus 6, verse number six, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. Then in the New Testament, God spoke of the the church's deliverance from the bondage of sin in the very same way, saying that we have been set free from sin. Romans chapter six, verse 18. To the Galatians, uh, Paul wrote that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law to the Colossians. The Bible says that Christ was delivered, has delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood. That's your, your subpoint letter A there, redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And I cite these scriptures because they are the spiritual blessings that we have positionally in Christ. We are the redeemed in Christ. The idea of redemption could be illustrated with this this sweet story. Uh, The little boy, Tom, carried his new toy boat down to the river. He carefully placed it in the water and slowly let out the string. 
Tom sat in the warm sunshine, admiring the toy boat boat that he had built. But suddenly a strong current caught the boat, and while Tom tried to pull it back to shore, the string broke, and the little boat was swept away downstream. Tom ran along the sandy shore as fast as he could, but his little boat had slipped out of sight. All afternoon he searched for it, but was finally forced to go home without it. A few days later, on his way home from school, Tom spotted his little toy boat. He spotted it in the store window. When he got closer, he could see, sure enough, it was none other than his toy boat. Tom hurried to the store manager. Sir, that's my boat in your window. I made it. Sorry, son, but someone else brought it in this morning. If you want it, you'll have to buy it. Tom hurried home and counted all of the the money he had to buy the boat. It would cost him everything. But when he reached the store, he rushed to the counter without hesitation. Here's the money for my boat. As he left the store, Tom hugged his little boat and said, Now you are twice mine. First I made you, and now I've bought you. And that's the redemption that we have in Christ, the spiritual blessing that God the Son paid for our redemption with his blood, everything he had. That's a blessing, a spiritual blessing. If you look at verse seven again, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. That's letter B, forgiveness by his grace. Redemption by his blood, forgiveness by his, his grace. And, and the phrase forgiveness of sins there in verse seven is in apposition to the phrase redemption through his blood. It means that it stands in parallel alongside. It relates to the other. It, it could read, in him we have redemption through his blood, namely the forgiveness of sin. We're familiar with Israel's highest holy day, that being Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Historically on Yom Kippur, the high priest chose two sacrificial goats. And the high priest would kill one of the goats and sprinkle the blood from that goat on the altar as a sacrifice. And then the high priest would place his hands on the head of the other goat to symbolically lay the sin of the people on it. That goat was then taken far into the wilderness to a place where it could never find its way back and it was released. We know it as the scapegoat. The scapegoat, the one which would take the blame. And as beautiful as that dramatic enactment was for the people to witness it, it never ultimately removed their sins. The writer of Hebrews explained that it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It was only the spotless lamb of God. That is Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice could ultimately forgive. So the work of God the Father in selecting us, electing and adopting us, that's a spiritual blessing. The work of God the Son in redeeming us through his blood, forgiving us by his grace, verse number seven. Then there's number three, the work of the Spirit in sealing the church. Sealing the church. And I would ask that you follow as I read verses nine through 14. I know your notes are complete, but look at the scripture text 
Ephesians 1, verse number nine, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. That's the church, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. In him, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. That's the doxological priority. We, We are to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit spirit of promise who is the guarantee this is the holy spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory verse number 11 says in him we have obtained an inheritance verse 14 then says the holy spirit is the guarantee or the seal of that inheritance and think with me about an inheritance by definition an inheritance is something received from another due to relationship with that other if my father or my grandfather were to to leave me a million dollars as an inheritance which by the way neither one did they're both home with the lord but hypothetically It's fun to dream. If my father or grandfather would have left me a million dollars, I would receive that money, that inheritance, by virtue of my relationship with them as a son or as a grandson. I would not receive that inheritance because I'm good looking, which maybe I am. I am. But... (laughs) That does not merit the inheritance, but rather an inheritance is something that is gifted because of familial relationship, you see. Our inheritance is not just from Christ, it's because we are in Christ. Because he chose us in him, verse number four. Adopted us as sons and daughters, verse number five. Redeemed us by his blood, verse number seven. We have an inheritance, because we have trusted and believed in him, verse number 13. And folks, I hope that is your testimony this morning. Hear me now. Do not worry about whether or not God chose you. Rather, worry about whether or not you have trusted and believed, verse number 13. That is your responsibility. And know that if you have trusted and believed, you are among the redeemed. You are among the forgiven. If you have, if you have called on the name of the Lord in, in faith, believing, you are adopted, you are chosen, you are redeemed, you are forgiven, and you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And someday you will receive that inheritance. Romans 8, verse number one promises, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Perhaps you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, I don't know that I'm in Christ Jesus. I don't know if I've been chosen or adopted. I don't know that I've ever been redeemed or forgiven. Then your responsibility is to trust, to believe in calling on the name of the Lord, and, and I want that for you this morning. If you're unclear about that, please search me out after the service. I remain down front here in the auditorium. I'd love to show you Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing about an inheritance. We're nearly done. You don't receive the full or complete benefit of an inheritance right away. 
the, the, the promise is made because the position is held by relationship, but the promise is not fulfilled immediately. You have to wait for it. So what do we do to ensure that the right heir receives the promise? Well, we put things in writing. We have documents. We establish a will. We get a guarantee that the rightful heir will receive the promise. And spiritually, that pledge or that guarantee is the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the seal or the security or the guarantee of our inheritance. And like an ancient king who puts his stamp with his signet ring, the official mark on a letter or a document or a contract, the official proof of ownership and authority and guarantee, so the Holy Spirit was given to us for that. You say, Pastor, I, I, thought, I thought our summer series was about the church. It is. That's us, those who have believed. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, Ephesians 1, verse 22, and he put all things, that is God the Father, put all things under his feet, that's Jesus, and gave him, Jesus Christ, to be head over all things to the church. You see, before we talk about the activity of the church this summer, we need to talk about the identity of the church And the church is comprised of those who are in Christ. I hope that's your testimony. And if it's not, please, please talk to me or another and say, I want to be in Christ and experience all of these spiritual blessings that are promised to me. Let's pray. Oh, dear God in heaven above, thank you for choosing us, for adopting us. Lord, we don't understand all of these things. We're thankful for Jesus Christ, your son, our savior, who redeemed us and has forgiven us by his blood and his grace. We're thankful for the spirit of God who has sealed us, who is the guarantee, the surety of our future inheritance. And God, this summer, as we think about our position in Christ and as we think about our activity as your church, I pray that you would help us to always celebrate these truths. Lord, if there are some under the sound of my voice this morning that are not in Christ, I pray that you would draw them to yourself and by your grace grant them the faith to believe. Lord, these things are too wonderful for us, but we know that ultimately we are complete in Jesus Christ, and for that we rejoice. I pray this in in Jesus' name. Amen.